Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by IK Multimedia. IK Multimedia gives musicians access to the most famous and sought-after guitar gear and studio effects of all time with our Amplitude and T-Rex analog modeling software. Now, IK has created the ultimate all-in-one bundle for bands and engineers, the Total Studio 2 Max, combining all of IK's award-winning amps, effects, sounds, and more. It's everything you need to track, mix, and master your music. IK Multimedia, musicians first. For more info, go to www.ikmultimedia.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, and Bring Me the Horizon. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder. Pro quality, multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Welcome to the URM podcast. I'm A.L. Levy. With me is Mr. Mark McCluskey, a multi-platinum award-winning producer, mixer, and composer based in New York. He has multiple top five Billboard albums and a number one album on iTunes. He's worked with artists such as Weezer, Bad Religion, Motion City Soundtrack, Everclear, many, many others. Uh, Mark is also a composer and mixer for TV, media, and film. His work has been seen on ESPN 30 for 30. He's done work for Coke, SAP, all kinds of stuff. And he owns and operates a drum sample virtual instrument company called Smack Drum Sample. So this guy does a lot of great work. Mark, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm I'm glad we could finally make it work. Yeah, this is great. I'm I'm uh, always happy to talk about life. So, well, all right. So, speaking of life, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in your life of audio? Was it your original, basically, your original mission, or is it something that just kind of happened along the way? So, I think it probably started for like most people that end up in this field or a creative field is you're like a kid and like some of your first memories that you have are uh, basically of music or some type of thing that has to do with music. So as far back yeah. as, yeah, exactly. Like everybody kind of has that one thing that they always gravitated towards. For me, when I was a little kid, I could remember the first time I can remember ever getting like uh, an allowance or anything, I would just like beg my uh, mom or dad or my aunts or uncles or whoever was around to take me to the mall so I could go buy albums. And that's kind of like where it started with me is like uh, <laughs> buying like, uh, you know, Michael Jackson and uh, Huey Lewis in the news is probably like one of my favorite uh, bands of all time. And like they really influenced me as, uh, you know, a music lover um, so much so that I whenever it is you're in elementary school and and you can go to uh uh start to have band class so i wanted to go play the saxophone because of uh huey lewis in the news but it was the 80s so everybody wanted to play the saxophone <laughs> so uh they had an uh abundance of saxophone players so i got stuck on the clarinet so i played the clarinet for a while and then uh finally moved over to saxophone eventually uh started playing all the different saxophones that they have 
and then when I started uh, high school, the jazz band needed a drummer. So I volunteered to play drums. Oh, I also played a snare drum in the, the regular band too before that. So uh, I started doing that. Um, I got more, you know, you start to develop more of your own taste and your, you get more uh, different genres of music. So I, I started gravitating towards punk a lot. I was a skateboard kid. So I was, uh, started writing my own songs, playing drums and jazz so band. So a, a punk musician that could actually play, uh, like, I don't want to say real music because it's all real music, but like of course. a punk musician who could actually play in a, in a technical way and was actually schooled in music. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like been my thing is like, uh, my, my whole family is like super sciencey kind of brains. Um, like my mm -hmm. sister's, uh, uh, an engineer. She actually worked for NASA at one point <laughs> in my, dad. Oh, wow. yeah, it's crazy. It's, she's a very, very cool woman. Um, so like a real rocket scientist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, she d deals in, uh, um, heat transfer. So like, like if something blows up and, and they want to know why they like put this paperwork on her desk and, you know, figure out why the heat went this way. So you can, uh, you know, make that not happen again. And now she works for this, uh, company that does, uh, like nuclear power stuff. And she flies all over the world, like going to nuclear power, power plants to help try to, cool their nuclear reactors more efficiently so <laughs> and that sounds like that sounds like fascinating work and not to not to be a bummer but when you told me what she did and we're talking about the 80s it, the first thing that came to mind was being in school and watching the challenger blow up yeah um, that's i think that anyone that went to school in the 80s remembers that as one of the you know, it's like one of those things, like you remember exactly where you were yeah. and what you were doing and everything about it. At least for me, it was that way. And so thinking about what she does now, that's just fascinating and super important, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she she's a, she's an awesome, awesome sister. She's very cool, very smart girl, obviously uh, kind and, you know. I couldn't ask for a better one. So do, do you think that, um, so you're saying that your family are actually science-y, did, did that affect or um, influence your approach towards music and audio? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it very, very much to my core, it did. It's, uh, I think about music is, it's math, you know? Um, it's basically the emotional math of, of harmony. Um, so, you know, humans... This is going to get ridiculous, but that's <laughs> you, okay. Yeah. Humans, right? What, what do we do? Like everything, our whole existence is based off of frequency. Color is a frequency. We see frequency. We hear mm -hmm. frequency. How often we go take a shit is a frequency. How often we eat is a frequency. It should be. <laughs> it yeah, should right, be right. If, if, yeah, if everything's working right, then. So, you know, your whole life is based off of how frequent something happens, right? So there's... I, I would, I never was the kind of guy when I started writing music and, and songs for myself, I wasn't the kind of person, like I happened upon a riff or a thing and I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to use that. I would go, okay, cool. I'm going to use that. I want to understand why I feel the way I do with these certain notes so I can repeat this process and I can use this process to get to other feelings. 
So I always that, thought, that, that's fascinating. I, I, I loved, I, I, I mean, I still love it. I studied music pretty in depth. Um, uh, your father, I think is a, is a composer, right? And a, and a conductor. Yeah. Conductor. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I like love the orchestra. Orchestra is like one of the most colorful things in the world. Like you can make so many beautiful colors with an orchestra. And, uh, if you, you know, going back onto the math stuff, like it's, I don't know. I just think about it like that. It's like, like, uh, I don't know if you remember in uh, high school, like your, your, uh, science, science, uh, class project or whatever, where you have your hypothesis and everything. So like, if you think about a song in that way is like, okay, so if I want somebody to cry or do this, then, well, what are my variables? What are my constants? And how do I fill in this equation to make them feel that way? And, you know, there's people out there that are like, you know, theories there, you know, I don't want to do the the rules of, of it. And that's, that's fine. You can totally do that. But either way, as a community of humans existing on earth, we all sort of have a um, reaction to certain harmonic movements, content, or whatever, whatever you want to do, the tensions and releases of music. And, uh, you I, know, that, that brings up a really interesting point, though, a question I have, because Okay, so I went to Berkeley, and um, there were lots of professors there who viewed music as math and knew all the equations mm-hmm. and taught taught you them. Um, and I totally agree with you that that is what music is. And they would talk about emotions much in the same way. Uh, however, uh, while they knew this whole my, I guess one side of music inside and out, the uh, the technical side of the uh, the technical side of the science. Um, when I would hear their music, it would be the most boring, non emotion inspiring garbage I've ever heard in my life. Uh-huh. And and lots of times you hear about some of the best writers, music writers saying that they don't know any theory. So obviously they understand the equation on an intuitive level. Yeah. But so that, so it's very rare, at least from what I've encountered is for someone who understands both, uh, both the math side of it and the, the emotional side of it, and then how to actually get them to work together. So what I'm wondering is, how do you actually think about it? Like, do you hear it or do you visualize it? Like when you're thinking about creating, like mm-hmm. evoking an emotion, um, how does that, like, how does that translate in your, in your mind? Right. So that's actually a really good question. I've, I've never been asked that before. So I still very much coming from punk rock, which is like some of the most basic on a musical level, right? Like if you're just looking at it for purely like like the the math side of it is very basic, right? And I, I like I love Green Day. Green Day is one of my favorite bands of all time. And so good. Yes, yes. I mean, like, and that's the thing is uh I feel that I don't take apart a Green Day song in my head harmonically until after I have like a feeling, right? And that feeling is what it is. And that can, you got to remember, like you can translate a feeling. You can, okay, so go going back to what you were saying about people with boring music, it might be that the textures that they're writing this music with are not very interesting because a texture can change the feeling, right? You can play mm-hmm. an E on a, on a piano and just hammer the note softly, 
right? But that same note and you hammer it as hard as you can feels different. Like you don't feel the same. It's the same as like punk drumming or something like that or, or, or jazz drumming, right? When you beat the shit out of the drums, it's the same snare, right? It, but it, it feels different. It just feels different. So I try to relate what I'm feeling and internalize that feeling and then the process after that is to go, okay, why did I feel that way? Like what was happening with the color of the music, with the, the you know, velocity of the music, with the harmony of the music, with the melody of the music, you know, where was all that stuff coming together to make me feel that way? And then I try to use those things to build a tool bank or a toolbox of things that I can go to, to start there and then flavor it to taste, like make it my own. Or make it whoever artist, whatever artist I'm working with, or whatever picture I'm writing to, or whatever it is. So I try to build a toolbox of general ideas, right? Where I know if I start here, I feel personally this way. Like I want to dance, or I want to uh, mm-hmm. cry, or I want to do this, and then I start there, and then I move forward, and you know, try things. And I'm not sitting there calculating the whole time. It's like, well, I know if I play the five chord here. We're definitely going back to one. You know, I'm not I'm not thinking about that. I'm letting my emotion guide me. But then I'll review and understand what I did, because maybe there's a better option in there theoretically that I wouldn't do just playing it. Right. Because it's uh, like I'm not Herbie Hancock. Like I'm not the guy that can just like play the emotion that's that's. uh like I, uh, how do you say this? Right. So you reverse it. That is a pretty crazy skill though, to, I think like the visceral, it's kind of like yeah. the visceral, like translation of yeah. emotion into sound in real time. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm not that guy and that's okay. Cause I, I know that I'm not that guy, but I, I'm, I feel that I'm the guy that can do something to feel a certain way and then look at it and go, okay, well we can enhance this by maybe trying this other thing or this other thing will work, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you're doing score studies helps a lot too, right? Like if you go through and like, like ET, everybody at the end of ET is like, man, I, fuck, <laughs> that was awesome. So you go look at yeah. it and it's Lydian, you know? So then you go, okay, well, Lydian makes me feel that way. So how many different ways can I use Lydian? And then you play with Lydian. And I guess it goes back to textures because uh, Lydian, you can hear, Lydian used on a lot of guitar music where it's just like oh, yeah. put you to sleep. But then you hear E.T. and it's one of the most unbelievable works of music ever. So uh, do, did you write this stuff down? I guess I assume you've been doing this for a long time, the uh, the analysis. Is it something that you'd write down like in English or would you write down in notation or just know it in your head? Like how would you go about the actual, the actual analysis. So yeah, I would just write, it's like a memory thing. Like there's not like a book I have where I go and like, you know, pull through. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, I just know how I feel when I listen to music and I'm just very aware of that. And I try to remember that feeling. Um, And I try to also, another thing is I've always, always, always allowed myself to listen to music I don't like because once you find that you understand what the artist is trying to do, uh, you can appreciate it on a certain level that you probably may have not 
come to a yeah. certain conclusion just because you turned it off too quick. So do you mean music that you don't like or music that you actively dislike? Yeah, I mean, both. Like, I'm not like a huge, uh, like, weird jazz guy. Like, I don't like atonal music. Neither like, am I. <laughs> yeah, I'm not into that. But still, I will sit down and I'll listen to it because there's some value in there. Like, great. I'm not going to sit down and listen to it, but I know atonal music makes me feel really uncomfortable. So if I'm scoring something, I'm going to write something with, you know, an atonality to it to give people a really uncomfortable vibe. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's value Mm -hmm. in that. So. Absolutely. Kind of an interesting situation. Not exactly what you're saying, though. I, uh, I totally think that you should learn music that you dislike for those reasons. Just recently on Nail the Mix, like a year ago, actually, we had a guy named Billy Decker on who's a amazing country mixer. He's had awesome. like 14 number ones, and wow. he's just like a mix god, basically, for uh-huh. no other way to put it. And he mixes songs in like 45 minutes, and they sound incredible. And I don't <laughs> like I don't like country, man. I just don't. Yeah. I never have. And there's just something about it that I don't like. It doesn't sit right with me. And Billy, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I, I love you and I love your work. But uh, I, I'm just not a country fan. It's just, uh, just not. And when we did Country Nail the Mix, um, we actually did five songs. And so I had to I had to sit there with it. They had no choice. Mm-hmm. And the appreciation that I got for that world, I don't think that it it would affect the way that I write or anything, but it's st- still, uh, the this is still something tangible. Um, mm-hmm. The appreciation that I developed for that world and their level of standards for music, just the level of standards for what a good take is and mm-hmm. what a good source sound is. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that is something that I would take with me everywhere because I've never really, I've never really heard some, like a genre that was so consistently high quality across the board. Cause mm-hmm. you know, I come from metal and yes, sometimes in metal, there's great musicians and great engineers, but for the most part, it's actually, uh, there's it's the art of making noise work, yep. and lots of the musicians are terrible. And you know, I think it's pretty much the same in rock. Like uh, you have to you have to work with a lot of elements that aren't supposed to work right. And right. there there's a whole there's something about especially in metal. There's something about the the whole metal world that's kind of unprofessional. And <laughs> I mean, not to dog it because it's where I come from, but like. It's some, there's just sometimes a lower bar at times. Not always. I mean, the best of the best are still the, you know, the best of any genre are still world-class, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when I, that, it's just seeing in country how good uh, just your normal, but your baseline artists were. is Because so one of the artists, you know, was diamond status. But then we had another artist that was just an up and comer and hadn't sold any records or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of spanned the span the range. And there was no it wasn't like the the diamond artist had an incredible recording and the up and comer had like a demo quality. They were yeah. both top notch. And 
you know, and so only through sitting there through something that I wouldn't choose to listen to did, you know, did that really sink in. And I think it's the same with, I think it's the same with the artistic side of it, with writing, like, like you said, yeah. for sure. I, I think, I mean, it's so funny when you started talking about country, that's right where my mind went. I was like, man, those guys' records always sound so good. Like they just crazy. They spend the time, you know? And, you know, I, even on that note, on, on that thing is, uh, you know, not to get like technical or start to talk about other stuff, but, you know, for me, and I'm sure you came up probably the same way because we're probably similar in age, is I started recording in my mom's garage on a boom box with like Radio Shack mics and like some shitty PVPA. So I like had to sit there and move mics for hours and turn volume, a volume, listen to it, go back, turn the volume again, because I couldn't post mix. Like there wasn't anything. It was two tracks into a tape. So <laughs> like, I, like I, that's where I started. Doing I had work. a walk, Ben. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you, you learn how to like listen. And I don't think a lot of people do that anymore. It's like, like there's, there's, uh, I say this uh, often is there's brilliance in silence. Like, like when you don't, when you just stand back and observe and just take in what's happening and internalize it and then make a decision, you're, you're going to get, uh, results. I, th I would think, I would imagine, at least for me, I'll speak, you'll get results, better results quicker with more of a, uh, a direction than sort of happening upon something. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for throwing stuff in a room and just throwing it up and then making things work later because then you'll get a, a, a really unique result, which is great. But you should learn how to have both sides of that, that coin, I think. That reminds me, and I don't know if this is a, a common saying or something, it just reminds me of something my one of my uncles said a long time ago, which is, and if this is a common phrase and there's a better way to say it, I'm sorry, please don't make fun of me on the internet, but um, <laughs> is uh, if you're in a hurry, drive slow. Um, yeah. So you, so you don't wreck or get pulled over basically, but yeah, exactly. I, I feel like it's the same idea. And what's, what's interesting too about the recording that method through the Walkman um, is so I was a guitar player at that point. It, that's how I learned to make harmonies that actually worked. I mean, I mm -hmm. understood harmony on paper because I studied it and mm -hmm. it was taught to me. And uh, both through like traditional studies and then my guitar teacher. But it wasn't until I started writing riffs and recording them on the Walkman and then hitting rewind and pressing play and having to come up with a harmony right then and there. Um, that I couldn't record, so it would have to be good enough to remember because mm -hmm. I didn't have two tracks. Um, it really, really focused my skills and my mind and uh, made it to where I could come up with pretty good stuff pretty fast. Yeah. Um, you know, and also, like, like you said before, like you didn't write down, I guess, the, the toolbox of ideas. You kind of internalized it. Um, mm -hmm. so kind of like a mental toolbox through recording through that Walkman, it kind of, it kind of created the same thing. It's almost like, uh, it worked on my instincts for yes. knowing what notes work and which notes don't, uh, I don't know how, how else to describe it. Yeah. Um, did you ever hear people trying to write harmonies 
it could be vocal or oh yeah on guitar or whatever and they're technically right like they're in key and all that like you know you could if you were in school you could check off all the all the, the criteria boxes. but yeah. something's wrong like and they can't hear what's wrong with it there's just something fucked yeah. with it yeah well it, you it know just, it's I, I don't mean to interrupt you it's like as soon as you said that i can think of like exactly Things so like the the common problems that I'll find again, and this goes back to just like like listening and going okay, internalizing that. Wait a minute, I see what's going on here. Is people uh, a lot of punk rock or, or rock bands or or people that aren't necessarily schooled in the theory of music, right? They'll sing something and they're like that works and it will work, but what they end up doing is they're not singing chord tones sometimes and they're singing extensions. Mm -hmm. And then what they'll do is they'll build their harmony based on like what they know, right? Which is like you do a third above, right? So then you have your third and then, but you're building the third off of an extension. So you'll have like these, you're building these really bizarre chords that don't function. It becomes a Schoenberg piece before you know it. Yeah. And that's why they're like, well, it doesn't sound right or something like that. Or another, another super common thing is, uh, right. So when I visualize an arrangement of a song, I, I picture a piano and you have your kick drum and your bass guitar, obviously really mm -hmm. low on your left hand. And then you have your baritone stuff. So whatever your guitar, right. And then you have, uh, whatever melody you're going to sing is usually somewhere in the middle. And then your, uh, high-end percussion and whatever leady stuff up top, right? And then, oh, I always do this with bands is I always say, now, how often do you see a piano player play in the exact same spot as his hand, as his, you know, as his right hand and his left hand? Are they ever playing on top of each other? And they're like, no. And I'm like, exactly. So you have too many things going on and all your harmonies are becoming like half steps, right? So mm -hmm. like another, another common thing, if we just stick to C major and we're playing in an F, Right. And then somebody's singing a C. So you're singing the fifth of F and then somebody sings the E, which is the third above the C. But now you're singing an F major seven chord, which is fine. But you're in where, some context. Yeah. Where you are in the keyboard is you might be right next to the octave guitar that you're playing. That is literally a half step off. So you're going to get this yep. really weird dissonance. So instead of like like spread out your harmony or move your harmony up to the F, you know, and then you're going to have a stronger feeling and you're going to have more of a function in that chord. I That brings up also that I think that, it, you know, and I don't want to sound, I don't want to make this sound too caveman. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that one of the things that sounds that people love about Green Day, for instance, or, you know, in a whole other sphere, um, the band Muse is mm -hmm. that. I love Muse. Yeah. It's Muse. very, very selective once you hear a seventh in there anyways to begin oh, with. Yeah. Um, it's pretty much just triads used to the, you know, to the highest level possible. Yeah. Um, but, but they don't, the, those bands don't even, you'll hear a seventh chord here and there, um, but it's really not, it's not just used to be used. No, exactly. Um, they have purpose. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I guess uh, Green Day is a little more simple than Muse, but still, like, it's, I, I kind of see it the same way. They're just writing great songs um, and just going about it different ways. But when it comes down to it, they're just, they're just great songs that you can remember and that strike those emotional chords. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, like you said before, it's not overcomplicated. No. Uh, that, and that's actually what I think the, the professors that I encountered did wrong. Like, yes, you can put that major seventh chord there, but should you? And that's the question exactly. that they're answering. Yeah, they're not asking themselves that. It's like, just because you can or because it is technically right doesn't mean that you should. Yes. And you need to ask yourself that or, I mean, not ask yourself in a yes or no, but ask ask yourself that emotionally when you're creating this stuff, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I can 100% agree. Like, I'll go back to like what I said a, a little while ago is there's brilliance in silence. Like, like you don't have to do stuff just because you know how to do it. Uh, and I and I encourage if anybody finds any of the stuff we're talking about interesting, I encourage you guys to go listen to uh, Jurassic Park. Da 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 da. Right. That that thing, yep. that little literally that is a one, four, five chord progression. And it's a triad and it's awesome. It that, things like if you look at a lot of John Williams music, they're not these crazy chords. They're not they're basic triads. He's just really. Clever. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it's very, very clever. It's another really simple but super effective John Williams piece. I mean, Jaws. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Two notes. Bum, bum. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's like he obviously he knows everything you need to know, right? But he just picks the right notes. It doesn't matter how crazy it is. It's just make the right thing. And then obviously the texture, right? That that same two notes on uh, <laughs> like a piccolo is not going to have the same effect as this. <laughs> that definitely yeah. won't. Yeah. The same thing is this like nautical, very deep, you know, dun, dun. It's just, you know, you get it. But yeah, that's the thing. Texture is a huge thing about music. That makes me think actually of something that is kind of opposite, uh, but it's, I I think it's structurally complex, but the delivery is very simple. Also, John Williams, I know where he, where he, I don't want to say ripped this from, but where he uh, quoted it from mm-hmm. um, in the Empire theme from Star Wars. It's I really I'm convinced that basically Shostakovich Tenth Symphony Second Movement. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Is is basically the Empire. It, the Empire theme. And I mean, I guess harmonically it's complex, but it's so bombastic in the mm-hmm. way that it's approached. And I think that it speaks to that texture where if uh, if you had something that was that harmonically dense, just played blandly or on the wrong instruments or yeah. wh- wh- whatever the case may be, it might just sound like noise to you. Whereas um, the way, and if anyone wants to hear it, just, yeah, just go check out just, Tukovic, 10th Symphony Movement, number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just heavy and bombastic and it works, but it works because I think there's a simplicity in the way that it comes off. The In the dynamics, there's a simplicity there. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. But I, look, if you want your mind blown, just go listen to King's Row and you'll just hear where the temp music for Star Wars came from. Uh, you know, if you guys like want to like dig into like John Williams, where he gets like a lot of his ideas from, uh, is uh, Holtz. So the planets has a yep. lot of influence on him. 
And then uh, King's Row. It's a movie from like, I think like the 40s that Ronald Reagan starred in. And it's literally like you're in the first five or 20 seconds, you'll be like, oh, my God, it's it's crazy. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, look, the first first rule in music, at least in in, uh, symphonic music and scoring is steel. Like, literally, like steal and then make it your own because all the notes have been written. Just pick the ones you like. Well, you know, what's really interesting about that is I I know that like some of the classical guys will, I guess, look down sometimes on uh, someone like John Williams because of, because I guess in some ways it's more simple than your traditional orchestral pieces or or because it's stolen from there. But I don't see it that way. I see it as he modernized. He took those ideas that were great for a hundred years ago and delivered them in a modern digestible fashion that uh, obviously resonated with millions of people. And with some of these like Star Wars or E.T., we people will know those themes a hundred years from now. Uh, same way that the original works uh, are somewhat still known. Um, it, it, he took, there's something about the original original orchestral music, and I think almost from any era, that I can't help it now that it just, I don't want to say dated, but there's something in their structures that just feels antiquated. Uh, it, I don't want to say dated because dated is something I think of when I think of like 80s metal. Yeah, and I don't right. want to, I don't want to like, I don't want to talk down on orchestral music because it's, you know, you think about things that people have created that are great, like spaceships or skyscrapers, symphonies are up there with that. But there's something in the delivery and the structure that is just somewhat, it just feels old. And someone like John Williams has taken lots of those classics and just redone them in a way that works for modern ears. And that's quite a talent. Yeah, I can agree with you on on 90% of that. I think what sort of how it made it palatable for people and influenced people like me when I was a kid, right, is you fall in love with the movie and the music is that such too. a big part of the movie that it it you fall in love with the music, right? Like Back to the Future, like that theme is great. And it's not really a traditional classical progression or anything, but the idea of taking these kind of, uh, it's almost like, I mean, it's almost like what's happening now is you're playing pop music with an orchestra, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not as complex. I'm, 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 I'm one of the luckiest guys. So this is a little, uh, a little offshoot. But so the, I work with a film composer named Robert Miller. And if anybody out there knows who Aaron Copeland is, he was a super famous oh, Amer- yeah. Yeah, American composer. He composed for the common man. Yeah, that was his Robert's mentor. So Robert's taking me under his wing and like kind of showing me the ropes. And, and he's got uh, his, his big, cool, culty movie that everybody loves is Teeth. So he scored Teeth. I don't know if, you get, if you've ever seen that. But, Actually, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, last year we did Louis C.K.'s new film that didn't come out. Um, uh, it was great. Robert wrote like these really cool waltzes for it. Uh, recorded in Abbey Road and, you know, is is a cool process to to see and be a part of. But uh, I mean, he's yeah. So I'm I'm super lucky that I get to learn from this guy and, you know, get to go on this little thing with him. But um, to answer your question is like that's kind of how because he's a true symphonist, right? He comes from mm-hmm. a symphonic world and that's how he 
kind of talks a lot of, and he looks up to John Williams, right? John Williams is is a symphonist first, and he just happened to become a film composer. So a lot of his work in film is easier to digest, I think probably because of the film. But if you really just look at the score, it's it's clever music. It's really smart. It's really, yeah, really it's smart. very clever. Yeah. Something I've started to do recently, which I, I encourage people to do because it's if for nothing else, it, it'll give you a different experience watching movies is uh, when a movie comes out that you want to watch, uh, get the soundtrack first and uh-huh. listen yeah. to it, listen to it over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and then go see the movie and knowing the music before you know what's happening in the movie, it's a whole other experience and it can actually make a movie that's not that great way cooler. Um, More interesting. For, yeah. yeah, for instance, uh, you know, I, I don't think Batman versus Superman was uh, that great of a movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of, it's okay, but a lot of, I think a lot of people agree, but I got the Hans Zimmer score mm-hmm. well in advance of seeing it and it's so good. Um, especially the Wonder Woman theme. It's just so good. And then when it happens, when it, those themes come up on screen, you just know them so well that it's like it makes the movie way way better, and it's different. It's a different experience than if you saw the movie and heard the soundtrack for the first time at the same time. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how to describe the difference, but it it is very very different. Or uh, Man of Steel was another one, uh, mm-hmm. the Superman movie. That's a great soundtrack, but I heard the soundtrack first, and so then when I saw the the actual movie, it just, it hit in a different way. Whereas I don't think I would have definitely liked it, liked that movie, if I had just seen it without hearing the soundtrack first. Yeah. Now, I mean, I always buy all the the movies that I, I know I'm going to see. Uh, I usually, yeah, as soon as the soundtrack comes out, they usually come out like two weeks before, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I usually buy them just because I'm curious and I do like to see... I try to see how what I think the cues are and then see what actually happens in the movie to be like, oh, okay, I see what he did with that. That's cool. Or And how often how often are you right? With like the thematic material? Like, yeah. like how how it uh I mean it it's usually easy to identify the hero and the villain, right? Mm-hmm. But um the subtle the subtle stuff is I mean, I'm never right. You know what I mean? Because it's like I don't know what ha- what's gonna happen in the movie, but it's fun to like like sort of okay, so if he's using this theme and this theme together, and he's and he's you know kind of varying it in this way, I wonder what's happening in the scene. Maybe this is happening. Then I'll see it, and it's usually never like what I'm thinking, but you know it gets your mind turning on how you can see variations being used and how you can have two themes play with each other and all that stuff. You know, one thing I've always wondered, a little off topic, but I've just it's always fascinated me is you know when you see a movie. Yeah, I'm a Hans Zimmer fan, so I'm mm-hmm. just going to bring up Inception. You see a movie like Inception, and the soundtrack is such a huge part of it. It's, it, I don't want to say it makes the movie, but it's it's definitely a huge part of what's awesome about it and why it's memorable and powerful. But Christopher Nolan had to have that movie in his head without that music. And so I wonder, like, I just wonder what is going through a director's head or uh, the writer's head 
when they're creating the movie and they don't have like the inception theme yet. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's funny that you mentioned that movie. I don't quote me. Maybe we need to do some research, but I think he had that before they started filming. And I think they played it on set during certain scenes. I, one of his movies is like that. And I want to say it's inception, but I, I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But um, of course, it would be the one I mentioned. I know the one and, you but that, but it, that, it makes perfect sense because that soundtrack is so like, it's like in the DNA. It really actually is in the DNA of that movie. Like uh, the, the apparently the what they use as the kick to wake up out of the dreams. Mm-hmm. The uh, the French song is what he built the rest of the soundtrack off of. Mm-hmm. So like everything in the soundtrack is. Uh, is in the DNA of the visuals. Oh yeah, yeah, and the story. I mean, that's that's the dream thing of well, Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer have like such a long relationship. Yeah, like that's the thing is is uh, you know the, the few thing the few films that I've been a part of, and I do a lot of media composing, right? So the the earlier you can get in to talk about story and characters and what's going to happen the better because you can you can help scenes in a way that you can't necessarily do after it's sort of locked picture or they're they're like almost done and it's a I like collaborating I guess was what I'm trying to say Mm -hmm. collaboration is great Um, because you can sway a director and you can see something that that he or she wasn't seen before with this idea of a theme or you know like, what is this guy thinking in the scene? Oh, well, if I score it like this and it might make him go, oh, if you're doing that kind of thing, wow, I can open up this other idea here. And I don't know. It gets into a cool thing. So earlier, the earlier in the process, the better for me. And honestly, you know, I see a parallel there for production, uh, just straight up music production with bands. Same way that like, you know, how certain songs mix themselves almost because mm-hmm. the arrangement and the songwriting was done so craftfully. Yep. Uh like they were done all, all so well and with the mix in mind that it just kind of comes together in a way that um in a way that say that somebody mixes a song that they didn't produce and maybe the arrangement's not wonderful or whatever mm-hmm. they can still pull off a great mix. No question. I mean obviously uh lots of great mixes have been done that way so there's Obviously, it works, but there's something magical that happens when, not to use the word inception, but mm-hmm. to use the word inception, it's all there from the inception of the production and the song. Absolutely. And so I, I guess I never thought of it, but it makes perfect sense that if you could do that in a movie, um, you would end up with something that is just way more integrated exactly. and powerful. Yep, you're you're 100% right. And, and on the production note is... You know, whenever I work with artists, like bands usually either love working with me or they really don't like working with me because you really have to think about it like I'm going to be your extra member, whatever your fifth or sixth or third or whoever it is. Right. And I exactly what you said is I love to get in there and just say, cool, you have a song, your demos. I don't care how long you spend on them. Give me an acoustic guitar and a vocal and we're going to start this thing from scratch Mm -hmm. because that's where if if the song doesn't rock on an acoustic guitar and a vocal, you know what? We're not we're not making anything here. We're just kind of like fucking around. Production's only 
cool, right? And and you won't ever have a record that people want to listen to over and over again because after the the excitement of how cool the production sounds is gone, you're left with nothing. Like you're left with a shell. So <laughs> you, you need to build the 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 thing that exists, and then the production should just amplify the thing that already rocks. So. I mean, it's almost like, it, it, not almost, but I think it definitely is that if you get that part right, mm-hmm. um, where it's built from the ground up the right way, it's almost like you don't need as sparkly of a final mix and oh, master. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be as, you know, five star lux to be, uh, to become a classic. Um, no. It's all, and it's almost like, if the song is not that good without that top notch hundred percent sparkly mix there, there's nothing that'll save it. Yeah, it's true. Basically. It's true. Yeah. Now, if you can get both together, that's, that's, that's you what know, you want. The, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why all these huge pop stars have like literally hundreds, if not a thousand songs submitted to make a 10 song record. And then they spend, you know, six months to a year making 10 songs or whatever, 12 songs, just crafting it over and over and over and over again until it's like, okay, wow, that sounds cool and the song's really good. And now I think we can actually sell 100,000 copies or whatever. Man, pop production and mixes are so, can I just say that they are so incredible? And I know that Mm -hmm. everybody is probably going to be like, uh, well, of course they are. Yeah, but I mean, really, uh, the 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 pop stuff has always blown me away by how sophisticated it is too, and I think in lots of ways it, it doesn't get that genre, and it's hard to say that genre because it's always evolving. But th- I guess the genre of pop does not get the respect it deserves from quote unquote legitimate uh, yeah. musicians side of the fence. That's so dumb. Uh, yeah. It's so stupid because I think that's the hardest. I think that's the hardest stuff to make because of the simplicity. Yes. Like like you were saying before with the simplicity, like to get something that's that simple, yet that unique, yet that powerful, that's that's another level. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I I say that all the time. Like if I'm working, so like one of my favorite things to do when I work with a band is I go, tell me three bands you want to knock off the charts. Okay, and the reason why I do that is it tells me what they what their goals are really, right? So if they name like three warp tour bands, I go, okay, cool. We don't have to be super anal about things because they want to their their aspirations are to be a warp tour band. So they're not going to mm-hmm. they're not going for the the top 40. So if they name, you know, bands or artists that are top 40 artists, then you go, okay, wow, that's informative. Then we need to really talk because if that's your competition, you really need to think about all these other things that you that you're going to have to do and have to compete with to really do it. Like there's a reason why, uh, like you said, like pop music is what it is, is because it's so simple and so well crafted for what it is. It's brilliant. It's the top, you know, the top of the, their game for that that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, God, I've, and I tell the artists all the time. You know, if it's so, because everybody always goes, oh, that stuff's stupid. It's so easy. And I'm like, man, if it's so easy, show me <laughs> Try how to do it. it. <laughs> yeah, make it and sh- tell me how to do it because I want to know. Like, I think it's cool. Like, I love pop music. It's such a great thing for what it is. 
you know, it's great. Like, just like orchestral music is great for what it is. Uh, you know, I love all of it. And I try to, like I said, I try to take it all in and learn from it and figure out stuff. Like one of my favorite things is uh, uh, Mr. Brightside, right? Like I, this, this is a great thing about texture, right? If somebody wants to understand if they're not cluing in on what, I'm, what I mean by texture is like that melody for that verse is one note or maybe two notes. I think he goes down a little bit, right? Coming out of my cage and I'm do a job fine. God, I gotta do that. Right? So it's like mm-hmm. fucking one note. But his texture in his voice is what is selling it. And that's where the genius lies in his delivery, not the notes. So I don't know. But I, I love that because it's just so simple. It's so simple, but it's such an emotionally powerful song. Absolutely. So, you know, how you're doing it rather than what you're doing yeah. is really what matters. And you know what's funny? I've always told people that that dog on genres or say that something's easy is if you really think it's that easy, what you should do is go to a, a local open mic night mm-hmm. and wait for, wait for the, the artist that's trying to do that style you're talking shit about. And um, that's basically what you're going to find there is the average level of people trying mm-hmm. a certain genre and how bad that sounds is basically what it, what the average person would create yeah. with pop. And so if it's uh if the actual stuff that you hear, the pro stuff is like three hundred times better, then just think about how much more difficult it would be to create that. I agree. Uh, so yeah, just go lo- listen to the local version and open mic night, and that'll be a good gauge yeah. for how for how difficult it is to create a a certain genre of music. Yeah. So speaking of production, um, it sounds to me like, like you do get very, very involved uh, from the ground up, like we've said. How did you get to the point where bands allowed you to do that? Because I know a lot of people listening are, some are well on in their careers, but some are at the very beginning mm-hmm. or beginning, middle to where, you know, they, they'll make a suggestion and they're dealing with a lot of pushback or, uh, you know, bands don't necessarily want to go the distance with them. How did you get to the point where that, you know, you had the ability or the clout or the leverage or the respect to be able to get bands to go along with you? Uh that's a good question. So everything for me was really organic. Like there was never a plan. I never wanted to be a music producer. Uh, I'm not saying that I don't love my job, but uh, it was never, I never like sat down. and was like, I'm going to be a music producer. Uh, what for me, what happened was uh, I, like I, I was in high school, right? So I started playing in bands. I started writing my own songs. Um, one of my friends, my best friend, Tom Bruno, who actually lives in Atlanta, started playing drums uh, in a band called Nuclear Saturday with me. And then we got signed to Vagrant Records for like a hot minute. We were on uh, the Five Years on the Street CD. Um, I was recording all of our demos and they were some of the better ones that sounded in town. And then other bands started approaching me, uh, asking me if I could record them. And then uh, I did. And, uh, I was working at Starbucks and then, 
I started charging the bands, like I don't even remember, like 300 bucks for like five songs or something. And then those bands started getting signed. And then I got more uh, work. So then I quit my job at Starbucks. And then. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then it was super organic. And like I just started working with these other bands. And as those got, bands got signed, labels started contacting me, managers or lawyers. And then I started recording those bands and then they would get signed and it kind of just went from there. And then as far as your question on how did bands trust me, I guess, and I hope this doesn't make me sound arrogant or anything. This is not said with any arrogance is my suggestions were right. I don't think it sounds arrogant. I think yeah. that's, I mean, you know, it's interesting that your suggestions were right. Obviously, if uh, the bands liked it and they went on to have success, then you can't argue with the suggestions. But then also, um, I think that the way, you know, and I've never worked with you, but I'm just guessing that the way that you deliver your suggestions is with 100% confidence, just based on the way you said that. And I think that that makes a big difference as to if an artist is going to take the ride with you. Mm-hmm on on something that could be altering their baby. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think and that 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 helps me actually sort of think about this a little more is I think, right? The confidence that you're feeling from it is because I could hear it in my head before I said it. So maybe a good suggestion for people is don't say something because you think it say that because you know it, like, you know that this is going to make it better. And you're going to build trust with the artist. If the first suggestion works good, they're going to go, okay, wow, that's actually a pretty cool idea. And then you're going to go, hey, man, I'm, I'm kind of hearing it like this. Can I see your guitar for a second? And they're like, yeah. And then you play it or whatever it is. And then you hand it back and they're like, oh, wow, that is cooler. Okay, let's keep going. And they, they, the, the artist-producer relationship in my my mind is, like I said, it's a collaboration. Like, I'm not the guy trying to change you. I'm the guy in the band that's trying to make this thing even better with you. You know, nobody succeeds by themselves. Everybody succeeds together. The best records I've ever made are not because of me. It's because of all of us. We're in a room together and we all sat down and nobody had an ego and everybody's, uh, you know, opinion was valuable. And we would try everything. Everything didn't work. But we tried it and we experimented and we took the time and it wasn't like this one guy's master plan. It was, okay, let's let's create something for the world to enjoy. Like, let's do this. This is going to be fun. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then, at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. You'll also get access to Mixlab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for your use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. 
And for those who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 40 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hour sessions with us and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urmacademy.com to find out more. Man, that translates, that idea translates for me also in business big time, um, especially now, um, you know, my partners in URM are very, very uh, strong-minded dudes, mm -hmm. and they're very, very smart. So you can't have shitty ideas. Um, I mean, you can. Uh, nobody, nobody bats a thousand, but still, mm -hmm. like, uh, it forces me to have to be totally certain when I bring something to the mm -hmm. table. And the way that I do that um, is it's a feeling, really. I mean, there, there's definitely a bunch of data and metrics you can look at. But honestly, with even with business, when it comes down to it, even if an idea to me looks good on paper, if it doesn't feel right, I don't even mm -hmm. bring it up. And there's oftentimes the ideas I've gotten through that we've all agreed on that have uh, done really well for us, involved a certain amount of risk, and there was no real data. I had to explain why I felt comfortable, what, what yeah. my, like it was feelings and I, it was, I feel that this is going to be successful for this and this and this reason, but it wasn't like because this percentage of people clicked on this or anything like that. It was definitely much more of an emotional thing. And when I felt that way, that that strongly about it, it's almost infectious to where uh, it was way easier to get mm -hmm. the dudes and the rest of the team to go along with me and to get behind the idea. And the same goes when they present an idea. Um, if they feel half-assed about it, like I can tell, and it's very easy to shoot down. Not that that's what we're trying to do, but, you know, part of why you work with people isn't just for the great ideas. It's so that you have partners to shoot down the bad ideas. And yeah, the confidence makes that way easier or more difficult. I guess uh, it made me think of uh, the difficulty of working with people who are super confident about bad ideas. And what a nightmare that turns into. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but that I feel like that's not as as common in really successful projects, obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, like, on that note is, like, look, you don't learn from uh, success. You learn from failure. So the more things you can try, you're going to fail more often, and you're going you're gonna to get somewhere cooler faster through that. If you never try anything and just do the one thing, you know, do you know what the definition of insanity is? Yeah, do the same thing over and over and expecting different a results. Different, exactly. So don't be insane. Don't be crazy. Don't be like so obsessive about like a, a thing. Allow 
things to fail and allow things to grow and allow things to change. Because once you accept that, you're going to see this thing that started, you know, at point A and now it's at point B and it's going to be a lot cooler. You just have to be willing to accept that journey. You know, but that's not a natural, uh, that's like not a natural position to take. I think it's the right position Mm -hmm. to take, but I think it takes work to be able to, like it takes mental work and personal work to be able to get to the point where you're comfortable failing. And um, I mean, that's a very, it's a very deep thing. And uh, the most successful people I know in any field all say it, that you need to be willing to fall flat on your face. Yeah. Um, but I think the reason that it, that so many people say it is because it's not that easy. It doesn't just, you don't, yeah. you don't just wake up comfortable with falling flat on your face. Falling on your face hurts um, if you've yeah. ever done it. It's not a fun experience. So um, how did you, did you have to work on that um, or did it come more naturally to you? Or is it something that evolved so, over time? I think... I mean, part of that, I think, is part of my personality just from the sciency elements or or that whole idea, right, for my family is like, why do you poke the bear? You poke the bear to see what happens. Okay, mm-hmm. well, now if I poke him at this other pot spot, what's going to happen, right? So I, I've always liked that idea to like, like, you know, what's going to happen? <laughs> I don't know. Let's find out. So and then on the side, other side of that is I can think of. There was one year where uh, I was, uh, I could remember writing songs and the songs I would ho- kind of hoard and I would go, well, I can't do this because then if I release it, then it's like, I won't ever be able to have this song again. And this might be the best song, right? So I would sort of hold this stuff. And then one year I remember I was like, I'm going to write 200 songs this year. I'm going to write a song a day essentially is what I told myself. And I did. And I sat down and every day I would write a song. They weren't all great, you know, but I just did it. And what that taught me is like, oh, yeah, there's always another idea. And if there's not, then you need to figure out why there's not another idea and then get that idea and keep it going. Because if there's not another idea, there's something else going on. Right. So you can always write more music. There's there's always something else that you're not doing. And I would challenge myself. I would write a song with four chords. I would write a song with three chords. I wrote a song, two chords. And then I wrote a song with one chord. And then that's where you get creative. Like put yourself in these boxes. That's, that's where creativity lies. Like it's easy to make anything with everything, <laughs> right? You just grab stuff and you make it. But if you do, if you have these barriers, you, you, you can't, you can't do this thing, then you have to be creative. And that's where other people are going to find it more interest in it too, because they're going to be like, wow, wait, I'm not bored and it's just this little thing. How did you do that? That reminds me of, I guess, someone I used to play with in a band. And hey, mm-hmm. if any of my ex-band members are listening, uh, this isn't about you because I've played with like 50 people. So mm-hmm. it could be, could be anyone. <laughs> so don't take, I'm not, I, I hope I don't start getting hate texts. But uh, so there's this guy that didn't write that much. Um, I, I was the main writer in every one of my bands. Um, I was a better writer than a player. Um, and so I tried to surround myself with better players to make up for that. Um, and so I wrote 
say, 90% of the music in all my bands, pretty much. And because of that, I'd say that I got used to ditching about 65% of everything I wrote. Just got Mm -hmm. trashed, maybe more. And so I got totally comfortable with almost all of my ideas being expendable. I mean, every once in a while, I would feel super strongly about one, and I'd fight for it till the death, and that usually would bear some fruit. That would usually end up being one of the more popular songs, kind of back to what we were saying before about the confidence. But um, I would just, in general, I would just be okay with ditching my own ideas. Like we'd go into a production with a producer and he would like cut out entire sections from my songs Mm -hmm. and just have to be okay with it. Um, And I became okay with it. But there was this one guy that I used to play with who um, he'd write like, two songs a year. And so he'd really be into those two songs and he'd present them. And so if you wanted to make any changes, like say that Mm -hmm. even if he only wrote two songs, like I still would want to put it through the same scrutiny as if it was one of my own. It doesn't matter who, doesn't matter who's presenting it. It's still going to go through the same quality control, but because he had way less uh, output um, as a writer, every one of those riffs or parts meant that much more to him. So that made it that much more difficult to Mm -hmm. cut out the bad riffs, um, which I thought was a very negative thing. And you contrast that to where I've either produced or played with guys who are just prolific writers, writing, 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 just always coming up with something. Uh, They typically have no problem with, uh, you don't like something? Cool, we'll change it. Uh, unless mm-hmm. they feel super strongly about it. But that's yeah. that's not as often as you would think. Yeah. No, you're right. I, I like the the super strong thing. Uh, you you uh, made me think of this thing that I can maybe, this is good advice for somebody maybe, is uh, I was watching, I love uh, uh, Young Frankenstein. And uh, I was watching uh, like a behind the scenes and uh, they were talking about, the scene with the monster and Dr. Frankenstein, right? And they're that where they're doing the tap dancing bit, right? And Mel Brooks was like, this is stupid. Like, we this is not funny. We should not put this in the movie. And then Gene Wilder like got really upset and like fought for it and was like, no, this is this is funny. You have to believe me. And Mel Brooks was like, okay, if you're this passionate about this thing, then I'm just not seeing what you're seeing. And uh, we'll leave it in the movie. And that's arguably one of the funniest moments in that movie. So when I heard him say that, I made a mental note to always be that guy that if somebody is fighting for something, then it, I'm, I'm missing the thing. It's not them, right? It's not the song or it's not whatever. It's not the production. I'm, I'm the one missing it. So I need to let them have this thing because clearly I'm not getting it and maybe I'll get it later. Wise, very, very wise. I'm sure that that's yielded some great results. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Some of the coolest stuff because look, you know, I'm not the end all be all. Nobody is. And yeah, the sooner you can accept that, you you can open yourself up to more experiences and being wowed by something you never thought you could be wowed by, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been talking for a while, and I want to make sure I get this stuff in um, Mm -hmm. before we go. Uh, So we've got some questions from 
our listeners for you. Oh, okay. That I'd like to throw at you. So here's one from Matt Sandstrom, which is Hurley by Weezer is one of my favorite albums. How did you manage to make songs like Ruling Me and Hang On sound so poppy and fun, yet alive and not overproduced? Also, I'd like to know about what it was like working on an album as one of three mixers. What level of coordination and communication was there between you and the others? Ah, that's a good question. So there was no communication between the others, uh, other mixers and me. Um, it was kind of like, uh, at that time, so Breck Erwitz was managing me at that time. And um, he basically, I, I don't think he gave me the whole record. Uh, I think the plan was to give it out to a few people. So the songs that he fed me were, oh, geez, I don't even remember, Really Me, Hang On, uh, and like three or four others. And uh, we didn't talk to each other. It was kind of like, let's just make these songs. And, and I encourage people to do this, right? Some people are like, well, it's got to sound like a record. Well, records don't sound like records. Records are just a collection of songs. You got to make the song speak and do the best it, it can be. And then it will sound good. And hopefully the other mixers on the thing did a great job. And then everybody sounds good next to each other. And you never question you know, is this a different mixer? Is this a different recording? Is this a different whatever? It doesn't really matter, um, at least in my opinion. And then as far as making those sound so raw and but poppy at the same time, I remember Hang On having two drum kits in it and like the verse is different than the chorus. And uh, again, like I'm not gonna, I'm gonna accept whatever I'm given. So I'm not gonna make that song into what I wish it was recorded like or wish it was, I'm going to take what I I have. I'm going to think about it and go, okay, well now I have, uh, okay, I'm remembering exactly what it was. I had a mono room mic and a kick drum track for the verse. And then the chorus was a full drum set, uh, full like mic, the, the, whole, the whole shebang. So instead of going, oh man, I need to, get these drums or I need to put in all these samples and do all this other stuff. I was like, okay, cool. This is what the cards were dealt. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make all the guitars mono. I'm going to make the kick drum and, uh, you know, everything's going to be mono in the, in the, in the verse. And when the chorus happens, I'm going to pan everything as wide as it can be. I'm going to make the stereo rooms be really noticed by this big drum hit right before it comes in and everything splits out. And then the next verse, everything's going to get small and mono again. So that was my plan. And that's that's kind of like how that song, I guess I would relate that with like super raw is like this verse is super raw. And then the, the chorus kind of comes in and it explodes and gets a little polished, big, open, wide sound. And then ruling me, that was, duh, duh, duh. yeah, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a s similar kind of thing with that is, you know, try to make the verses as, you know, tight and verse-like as possible and try to blow up the chorus. And uh, I think a lot of that record was recorded like in a lot of different locations and quickly. So, um, and again, my philosophy is like, if you have a crappy sounding kick drum, if it sounds bad, right, and you can't get that bad thing to sound as good as the best sounding thing, then the best sounding thing is the bad thing. So that way you have mm -hmm. to make everything else work with the worst sounding thing. So yep. whatever it is, and then, but I know this sounds counterintuitive, but if you do that, then your mix will sound good because everything relates to each other. So 
um, yeah, I try to take everything that I'm given and make, again, make it, that's what I got. So I'm just going to make this thing rock and it's going to, it's, you're going to get a more unique sound, right? Another, you're not going to be able to reproduce that thing over and over and over again. Like, uh, drum samples, right? I, I, I own a drum sample company. I use drum samples. I'm not going to say that I don't, I do, but I like the idea of not getting a mix and already killing all the drums and putting it in my samples, right? I use samples for reinforcement because you don't want a bunch of records to sound the same over and over and over and over again. You want a unique sound for each record. And you have to do that by uh, capturing lightning in a bottle, by mic choice and how you record it or how you mix it. Or don't just put all the stock stuff you normally do because you know how to do that one thing. Don't do that. Like, don't. Uh, you'll have your sound regardless because you're going to make certain mixed choices that somebody else wouldn't make. And that's your sound. It's not about the tonality of things. Um, that's kind of like a way I that's say That's a great it. answer. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, it's, it makes me think of something that I always tell people when they ask about how do you develop your unique sound, whether it's as a musician or producer. And my opinion is don't even really worry about it. Just try to get good mm -hmm. because the, your unique sound will come through no matter what, because it's you, you are you. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're a unique, you, you are the, uh, the anomaly, right? Like you're the thing that is only one of and how you think about it. And, and that's, it goes back to again, right? Just don't, go on autopilot when you start mixing or tracking or recording, right? Be you, be a human being, be the human being that you are. And if you allow yourself to be human and think about things and don't just go to a stock thing that you normally do and go, okay, wait, I know I want this kind of guitar sound, but that texture, if I can get this kind of texture, it might make somebody feel more like what the song is about. And that's what, that's what I want to create. So now I got to figure out how to get that texture, whatever that is. And that's actually my counter argument. When I'm trying to get uh, mixers to come on Nail the Mix, uh, sometimes the you know their objection is, well, I don't want to give out my my secrets, and I understand. However, <laughs> I completely completely disagree. Yeah, me too. Because the one thing that they cannot give out, no matter how hard they try, is their brain. Yep, and their ears that are attached to that brain. Yep. And so no matter if someone watches the entire Nail the Mix session and goes through and screenshots every single plug-in yeah. move and tries to recreate it exactly and think it's still not going to work. Um, and we know that. We know that because we've done so many of them now. Yeah. Uh, that if, like, so actually before we started having guests on, uh, myself and my partners were the ones who did it. And so I don't know if you've heard of one of my partners, Joey Sturgis. Yeah, but of course. He, uh, okay, so you know that he basically was behind a whole genre of heavy music. Mm -hmm. He created his own sound. And so you would think that with the amount of people who have tried to imitate it or who think that it's just presets or something, yeah. who have watched him on Nail the Mix multiple times, you would think that, they would be able to just make mixes as good as his yep. uh, that sound just like his if it really was, if that's really all there was to it. But it's not. No. And so it doesn't doesn't matter. Really, all you're doing by doing Nail & Mix is showing people how you would solve a particular problem. That's right. But then 
how they how they then translate that into their own workflow is a whole separate yeah. topic. Yeah. So, all right, here's another question. This one is from Runar Magnuson. Um, another two-part question. So, what are some common mistakes or bad habits among the up-and-coming bands or artists you work with, like in their songwriting, work ethic, and practicing? And how much creative input do you have when working with bands like Bad Religion and Weezer, oh. who seem to have a very strong creative vision? Yeah, so no no creative input for Bad Religion. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, that'd be Brett, Brett, those guys, yeah, no. Uh, those guys know what they're, you know, I'm not going to suggest hey, sometimes, anything. Sometimes you... Sometimes the best thing you can do is get out of the way. You know? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And same with Weezer. You know, um, I, I mixed Weezer and I produced uh, a couple songs for us. Rivers does this uh, Japanese thing with my friend Scott, who used to play in Alistair. Uh, it's called Scott Rivers, and I've produced like a couple songs for them. But the creative input is is for those size bands. They, I mean, they are who they are because of their creative input, right? So you don't really need to guide people like that. Um, uh, I'd imagine it's like Muse is like the same thing. Like you're not going to be like, Hey, Matthew Bellamy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do this thing. He's going to give you, he's going <laughs> to give you a look and be like, I, I think I know what I'm doing here. Um, I couldn't imagine trying like it being the guy on that gig and trying to tell him what to do or something. Right. Right. You know, yeah. but you know, and, and to give the other side of that is, Bands that size and that caliber, what I think, uh, and that talented, right? They they have a clear vision. Uh, I think what you can bring to the table is texture, right? Like you can bring in a way that you record something or layer something or think about their production that they might not be seeing. So that's how you can have your influence in creating a, a sound of a record for them, Uh it's again, I know I keep using this word like texture. It's so important. The color of a song, it, it really matters. Um, and then what was the, the first part of that question? Um, what are some common mistakes or bad habits among the up and coming mm. bands or artists you work with, like in terms of songwriting or work ethic or practicing? Uh, okay. So the first thing I usually see is, uh, so my wife, uh, she has a saying, and it's totally true. Out of the 17 years I've been doing this professionally, uh, she can be like, that band's going to make it, you know, and make it could be get a record deal or do well or whatever, right? Not like the biggest band in the world. And she can tell which bands are going to do that and which bands aren't. And she says she has a saying is this, the bands that aren't going to do it, their ethic is they're waiting for a letter. So they're, they're these bands <laughs> that come in and they go, man, we got, we, we're going to do it. We're going to do all this stuff. We're working with a producer. So in their minds, they're like, we're, we're a real band. And, uh, they just sit back. They don't put in the time. They don't put in the, the ethic, you know, the work ethic to try to write a new part or make their songs better than what they are at that moment. And, uh, they just sit there and they think one day they're going to open their mailbox and they're going to get a letter and it's going to say, congratulations, you're a rock star. <laughs> and that never happens. You know, one of the hardest working bands I ever worked with that I saw the whole thing happen was Ludo. And they started out as a local band in St. Louis, right? And St. Louis is not a big city. It's not like famous for being, uh, you know, a great birthplace for uh, rock bands or whatever, right? So you can't argue that they were at the right place. Uh, they just 
played shows and wrote great songs and just worked their asses off. They basically said, we're not going to work jobs. We're only going to make money through music. How can we do that? And then that's what they did. And we did demos and they got signed to Island. We had a top 10 single. Um, and, you know, they they were great. I wish they didn't uh, take a hiatus or broken up or whatever they are now. But those guys are super talented, great guys. And uh, it just shows you just work hard and just keep going and like don't settle. Just don't settle. You can always get better. If you're not crafting your song up until the time that recording button goes on, then you're really not doing everything you can to make it great. I totally agree with you with everything you just said. Um, it makes me think of that sometimes I've just heard, you know, sometimes lots I've heard that people think that when you have a successful artist or band that somehow they got lucky or it was handed to mm -hmm. them or they had a rich parent or, you know, something, something along those lines. And sometimes they do have a rich parent right. or a connection, but that's only enough to get you in the door. It's yeah. definitely not going to keep you there. And contrast that, man, I know so many successful musicians and producers who come from the worst backgrounds Absolutely. who had nothing handed to them, who have some of the most tragic lives uh, I guess the first part of their lives, like some of the most tragic upbringings you could think of mm -hmm. um, and just bad luck along the way and terrible stories who have just gotten through and had incredible careers. And yep. um, and then I've seen guys who have come from Everything. money and yeah. uh, end up, end up in prison or something yep. and totally destroy their own careers. Um, I, I think it has nothing to do with it, and nope. uh, it has everything to do with what you bring to the table and just how deep you're willing to go Yeah, and for how long. Exactly, how long. And uh, if I can add on that is being able to recognize – everybody's not great at everything, right? Like, like uh, I'm not like the best player in the world. You know, whatever your weaknesses, you need to recognize that and then find a way to get that up to where your strengths are. You know, whatever, whatever that stuff is, look at yourself and go, okay, what do I really need to improve at? Like, where are my faults? And you can't be, you can't compare yourself to somebody like Chris Lord Algae that's 60 years old or whatever and been doing it <laughs> since he was 14 because he's got all those years on you. So you have to look at like, what are your strengths for right now? Like, what am I really good at? Okay, well, that's great. Cause that seems to take care of itself, whatever that thing is. So all these other things are my fault. So that's the stuff I need to work on. I don't know music theory. I don't know how to put together songs really well. Well, let me learn about that. You know, I don't have to stick to the theory, but at least if I can understand it, when these problems arise, I'll have a starting point to be able to solve it. Or work with team members who compliment your weaknesses. There you go. Boom. Like either way, um, it's, end result is the same. Um, it's, that's it. Like I said before, that's exactly what I did in my bands. And, um, I remember once I had a, uh, a fight with somebody, the guy was trying to insult me and he said that basically I got this guy, this other guy in my band so I could ride his coattails as a guitar player. Cause he's a fucking phenomenal guitar player. Uh -huh. And it's like, well, no, actually, no. That, that's not it at all, um, because you know I'm the I'm the guy who got us the record deal and did all the networking and yep. wrote most of the music and put it together. But I knew that I wasn't that great of a player, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found someone who is yeah, and fill the let gap. him do, yeah, let him do most of the tracking. It's, uh, yes. you know, it was, uh, it, we worked, you know, he benefited from what I was good at as much as I benefited from what he was good at. And so that argument doesn't work. And, uh, I, it, like, it's the same thing in, you know, bring up my business partners now, for instance, Joey is good at computer stuff in a way that I could never be and will never be like, uh, just, it's just the way his brain works. And he also has that background. Like he knew how to code. He used to work at a computer store. Mm -hmm. Like that is in his background and it's not, that's not me. I'm not the guy who, I'm, yeah, I'm not the guy who jumps into the software and fixes it, uh, I'm uh, like, I have a whole different skill set. And that's to me that that's part of what works is figuring out what you're not good at. And like you said, either you learn how to do it or you find someone else who does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Um, that's what Steve Jobs did. You know, he's not a software guy. He hired great software people because he knew he was an idea guy and needed somebody to fill the void that he couldn't do. I mean, that's, yeah. It's funny. It's so funny when people, uh, talk shit about him, like, like somehow being the visionary is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you, like, I, I, I don't get it. it just, so what if he didn't do the actual coding? That's Who that's cares? okay. Obvi- obviously, it worked. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. So here is another question. This one is from Michael Goodrich, and do you mix differently for projects you know will be played on the radio a lot? compared to more up-and-coming acts that just want to sound good? Oh, no. Sounds like a loaded question. Yeah, it does. Uh, No, not at all. Uh, You know, I want everything to sound the best it can for what it is. Again, you know, it's... No, I sit here and I I open the session and I just start mixing the song as if it was, you know, Weezer or whoever. doesn't... To me, it doesn't matter. It's music. I want to just make it sonically cool and... And uh, do the song justice. It's like back, you know, when I was t- talking about Billy Decker and the country, uh, the country stuff. Yep. Like I said earlier, there's no difference in the quality between the superstar mm-hmm. and the up and comers. They all sounded great. And I know that Billy uh, will tell you over and over and over that it doesn't matter if uh, if the person paying him is has sold 10 million records yeah. or a hundred records. He's going to go for it yep. the same way. Yep. No, it's and true. I, the, also what sounds loaded about that question is saying up and coming acts that just want a good sound. Like, does that mean that radio bands don't want a good sound? Yeah. I don't No, I, I think, don't totally understand. I, I think, you know, the, this is the thing that I can maybe where, and, and again, I'm trying to like assume what, what what experience he's had to lead him to this question. Um, the thing that I can say is uh, maybe that if you've had a poor experience hiring a bigger mixer or somebody like that is uh, the tracking, right? You can only make whatever, you, you can only mix what you're given. So if the tracks, yes. if the tracks were recorded poorly, and and again, the mix might be good for what you were given, but you might hear a 
record that costs, you know, $40,000 to make or whatever that was in a proper studio. And you're going to go, well, why doesn't it sound like that? It's you can only mix what you're given. So if the tracks are and I don't want to say subpar because it's all a taste thing, right? Like a sh- uh, uh, what we would call a shitty sounding record could be the perfect thing for somebody. So if mm-hmm. if if your tracks are not what you want them to sound like, the mixer cannot make them sound any different than what you give them. So you have to get it at the tracking stage, that sound yeah. that you're looking for. Man, and how true does that become with mastering too? Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. Masters like, can do anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's so important to get it right um, from the inception. So, all right, here's the last question. And this one also sounds a little bit loaded, but I know this guy in real life and I know it's not a loaded question. So I'm going to ask you his question and then I'm going to add my own ending to it. Okay. Um, So this is from Miami Dolphin. And by the way, that is his real name. That's amazing. I love that. I've seen, yeah, I've seen his driver's license. That's awesome. It actually is Miami. So he's probably uh, from like Ohio or something, right? (laughs) Actually, uh, his handle on um, somewhere is Cleveland Brown. Oh, that's great. (laughs) So I, I, so I was about to say, I think he's from Ohio, but actually I think he's from Virginia. Ah, that's great. Um, I love it. Just probably was born to some (laughs) Miami Dolphins fans. Big time. Um, for real. So here it is. Hey, Mark, I know you are also a member of Sound Better. Do you think it's possible for up-and-comers at Hustle to make a living solely uh, off of work for higher sites like that? Mm. Or do you think that because there are already platinum mixers like yourself or Jeff Giuliano that it doesn't make sense? And then I'm going to add my own ending, which is what do you think that up-and-comers can do uh, to compete against the entrenched players? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And it's funny because I've actually thought about that before. So I use Sound Better, not really, I use it to like fill my book, right? So uh, I do cheaper mixes on there um, to just sort of fill in the time that I need to get filled. Uh, and I'll turn down work on there. And if there's a cool project that I see pop up, like today I saw like a, f- a film pop up for, uh, they need a score. So yeah, I'm going to go, you know, go after that. So yeah, I mean, it is like, it's like easy to get in contact with people like me and Jeff, Jeff, I sold Jeff, uh, I used to have a 33609 the, with serial number three. And I sold it to Jeff and I wow. yeah, and I still regret it, but <laughs> Jeff's a good guy. <laughs> um, but uh, so how do you get that? Right. How do you, how do you get around people like us? Um, you can undercut us and then over deliver. That's one way. And then uh, like anything, you build a name and get these people to review you, uh, try to get, you know, your five stars and post that everywhere. Um, uh you know, another thing is I, th- I think people probably really go on there and listen to whatever your offerings are, like your your demos or, or projects you've worked on before. Um, so make sure that those are just like solid, solid demos. So you you, you can't argue with with uh, with uh, the quality. Right. So if you have something on there that's just perfect for an artist, go for it. Submit to every job you can at the beginning. Um I know, I know it's like tough. It's like, how do you do this thing that all these other people are 
in your way. You're like the guy at the back of the crowd, um, jumping, going like, hey, but I'm here too. I get it. Um, shit. I wish I had better advice. Work with as many local bands as you can. I'm sure this is the same advice everybody does. Work for free um, until you become in demand. Uh, You know, I was lucky enough to be in a different time, right? The internet wasn't really as prominent as it was now. Um, Everything, the bands were still a thing. It wasn't like two guys that wanted to write music uh, when I started. So, you know, it was just very different. And I feel lucky to be able to have been a part of that. But yeah, the best advice, work for free, work as much as you can, never say no. And if you're you're only going to get better because you're working more, and hopefully you get so good that people just have to work with you and they'll pay whatever it takes. Yeah, I mean, I think that by trying to make a living solely off of a site like Sound Better, you're yeah. definitely not gonna shooting hit. down. Yeah, you're like kind of yeah. limiting your options there quite a bit. And I also think that, um, it, and this is going to go contrary to what I know a lot of our students think, but I don't really think that uh, there's too much you can do as a producer to to really market yourself in the way that a business does. Yeah, like really, I mean, you you can to a degree, but really, what makes the majority of a difference as a person that makes audio uh, for a living, as a producer, mixer, writer, is what people think of your work and yeah. what they tell other people who would potentially hire you. That's, I think that's like 90% of it It right there. And then the other 10% would be the, uh, you know, marketing you can do online. And like a great example of someone who markets the shit out of himself is Chris Lord Algae. But I mean, the dude is already a phenom. He's at the top already, so... Yeah, the the only difference that I think it's made is that maybe there's some guys who are at his level, you know, as far as skill and maybe record sales who aren't as known to the younger generation just because they're not on a million plugins and mm-hmm. doing like every seminar that they can. Um so like I'm sure that it's helped a little bit, but I don't think that it's made a difference to him whereas like he's now a rich guy or and before he wouldn't have been or something right right now he now he's sold 30 million albums whereas before he would have only sold two yeah. uh yeah it's uh, i think it's just a small incremental thing and so i see lots of up-and-comer guys who study marketing and i think that that's great and it can't hurt that much but they focus on it way too much. Yeah. And I like, I get it when you, especially if you're learning from something like URM or whatever, we market like crazy, but we are a business. So we have to sell a volume of products in or subscriptions in order to be able to keep the lights on. It doesn't, yeah. it's not. It's different. It's totally different. It's not like a one-to-one thing where you are with an artist or in a project for six weeks straight and, or something like that. And it, you know, you only need one at that particular time period in order to do. Okay. It's not the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think that 
Miami, uh, I know for a fact that you are a hustler and work your ass off. And that right there is like the guy moved, for instance, he like moved from Virginia to L.A., mm-hmm. uh, put himself into massive debt in order to get his career further. And it worked. He immediately got in with some good people and uh, his budgets are going up and he's getting a lot of work and he's making it happen. But it's definitely not because of a site like Sound Better. Not that that hurts, but it's because he actually made the sacrifice and has worked on his craft. Like I remember, for instance, uh, at one point he got an internship with uh, one of the guys who had come on Nail the Mix. And that guy uh, was Pro Tools only. And at the time, Miami only knew Reaper. And ah. so th- uh, the guy asked me about him and I was like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you to definitely take him or definitely not take him, but give him a chance to at least get it under his belt. And I know that the dude's a hard worker and, you know, yeah, give him a time, ta- give him a time limit. If he can't, handle it in two weeks or whatever, just move on. But I, as soon as like he had that opportunity, I know that he basically stayed up for two weeks straight to teach himself pro tools. Yeah. uh, And uh, it worked, you know, like that's, that's what works. Yeah. That is what works. Like he'll, he'll be successful as long as he keeps that mentality. He'll, he'll be successful because you're, you're only a failure if you allow yourself to fail. <laughs> so you, yeah. you keep pushing, then you're not failing. You're just working through a rough spot. Exactly. And the stuff like Sound Better or Noise Creators or whatever, that's very, very mm-hmm. good for just, I guess, for just keeping your visibility up, which is always good, staying top of mind. And obviously, the more successful you already are, the more that it will yield you know, like you said, like it helps fill the calendar. Yeah. But man, imagine if you were starting your career now and you're like, okay, sound better. That's the, that's, that's how I'm going to make this one. Yeah. I yeah. know. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I, 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 would, I wouldn't put my, all my eggs in that basket. You know, I mean, what, what do you have to do? You have to sign up and that's it. Right. So let that thing just kind of be what it is and then go work your ass off. And then those will be like the little things you'll be like, oh, cool. I made three or 400 bucks extra this week that I didn't think I was going to make. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure that Fiverr is very similar. And, you know, I know that Fiverr has a reputation for having some horrible people on it Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, whatever it is that you hire people for. But I am sure that there's also some brilliant people on there who make a killing off it, but also make a killing in real life and just use Fiverr as one more income source. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, the younger people that haven't been doing this that long, they're going to find, if they stick with it, they're going to find like everything, everything happens in waves. Like you're going to get so busy. You're going to be like, oh my God, how am I going to do all this stuff? And then you're going to be so dead. You're going to be like, oh my God, I'm never going to work again. And then all of a sudden it gets super busy again. It's just how the nature of the business and the nature of it, you know, that's just how it works. Yeah. And there's no real getting around that. Mm-hmm. Part. Yeah. Except, ex- except for yourself that it's going to be a kind of crazy, like uh, no security sort of life for sure. Man, I can tell you, even my dad, who has done great in the orchestral world, mm-hmm. it is still at this point 
um, you know, he still has to think about maybe not the next gig, but, uh, oh, yeah. you know, two years from now, which orchestra is he going to be with? Like, that's yeah, still a fact of life. Absolutely. I mean, the guy, Robert Miller, that I work with, he's scored 65 films and 2,500 commercials uh, over his his uh, career. Wow. And, yeah, it's like, I mean, ridiculous. Like, all the Coke Polar Bear stuff. Um, I could just name a million commercials. In, like, we just did the new Coke campaign. So if you guys see that, it's uh, Hall of the Mountain King, uh, reimagined uh, for all these Coke graffiti spots that come up. And, and every spot has that same running thread. Can we find it on YouTube? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Just Okay, then uh, we're going to put it in the show notes, actually. So if uh, you go to urm.academy and find this episode, just look at the show notes and we'll have some of those in there. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll send them to you, but yeah, Robert did that. He, uh, was in, um, uh, the orchestra was recorded at Fox in LA. So yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's the same thing, like uh, with his pedigree and his volume of work that he's, he's done and his reputation in the business. It's, it's still like, look, you know, there's periods where we're like, oh, okay, we only got a couple commercials right now. And then there's times where it's just like, oh my God, God, how are we going to actually last week was like that. Uh, it was like, how are we going to finish all this, all of this right now? But uh, you get through it and then it just keeps coming in waves up and down, up and down. Yeah. Self-employment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the, that is what it yeah. is. If you're not good with it, um, you may not last. No. Uh, yeah, it's you, true. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Oh it's been God. Great talking to you. Thank you. Real. I love it. I love it. Yeah. yeah, I would love to do anything with you guys that, that you have. I would love to do it. I love doing this stuff. We would love to have you. I mean, uh, I I can tell that that uh, you're into this. You're very, very well spoken, <laughs> and it's been, a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.